Okay. We begin last week a new study about the devil. We're going to continue that. Keep going with that. We're going to be talking about hell, too, as part of this study as we go on for the next few weeks that we have uh, a Bible study for the summer. Summer is starting to be half gone, isn't it? So it won't be long. It'll be all gone just like that, isn't it? So. <laughs> okay. Last week we talked about the origins of the devil, what he was created for, how he was created to be a worshiper, how his pride lifted him up and he was in rebellion against God and what God did, which was throw him out and uh, cast him down from that high spot that he had uh, occupied. And now we go on a little bit farther to into the New Testament. I want to look at a couple verses first to set our minds up. Uh, at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We want to start there. We have a couple of warnings and some very exacting advice on how we're supposed to deal with it. <clears throat> and just be sure you understand that Satan is a lot smarter than you are, okay? He's very clever at what he does, very subtle. When we first see him in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, he comes right in right away. The first word that describes him is he is subtle. That is, he's very clever at what he does and very uh, underhanded and able to tell huge lies and make it sound good. And so uh, we saw him that way. Now we're going to have some warning about that. Uh, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse, verse number 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he careth for you all right so we're going to trust God cast our cares on him be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour so we have a warning here by Peter, and Peter knows, Peter knows by experience that the devil can really take you down in a hurry. He's a, he's a roaring lion. He's dangerous. He's a hungry lion. He's going to try to devour you. And so he tells us, boy, you need to be careful. As you're trusting God, you need to watch out. And here's what you do, verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. All right, so he gives us the advice here to resist. We are to resist the devil and 
be watchful, be aware of him, and it's our job to resist him. Well, how do we do that when he's so much smarter than we are, so much more powerful than we are? How are we going to do that? Now, back a couple pages to the book of James, uh, the book before Peter. Book of James, chapter 4. In verse number 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Once again, James uses the word resist the devil, and he says he will flee, he will flee from you, he'll run away from you if you resist him. So we got to know how we're going to do that. It's really important for us to know how are we going to resist him? What are we going to do that can uh, come up against a powerful enemy who's walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? I told you last week, he hates you and he wants to kill you. And that's just straight out the way it is. Right? He hates you. He wants to kill you. He can't kill you, but he can... Uh, try to get you off enough so you lose your soul. And that's where he is most clever. He doesn't have to turn you into a raving lunatic. He just got to get you off course a little so that you miss the mark. And so uh, then I want to look over at uh, uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 2, and here Paul will say something about how to deal with the devil, too. He's first dealing with the idea that we need to forgive anybody that we can. Because one of the things that you're going to carry around in your life are grudges against various people for sometimes no good reason. Maybe you say, I got a good reason, doesn't matter. Uh, chapter uh, 2, 2 Corinthians, verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. All right, so he says, I always keep myself forgiving everything that happens to me. I always forgive it. Why? Verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. All right, so he says, if we carry around a grudge and we don't forgive people who do things that harm us or do things intentionally to hurt us, if we don't forgive those people, then Satan's got the advantage. We can't let that happen. And then he says this, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That is, there are certain ways that he works. And uh, we need to be aware of the way that this, the devil works, what he's going to do. Like I said, he's not trying to get you all crazy. He just needs to get you off balance a little bit, make sure you miss the mark. And he is very subtle and good at doing that. So there you go. You're all set. You got to resist the devil. Go home and give it a whirl. See how it goes. All right. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Karen's under the weather, so I left her sleeping. Okay, all right. Good to see you. Have a seat. So, uh, 
it's, it's very difficult to get the best of him because I'm afraid a lot of times we are ignorant of his devices. Now, he says we're not. He's talking about himself. But we may not be so aware of how Satan works. So how are we going to do it? How are we going to get a hold of those things so that we can handle them? Well, we're going to get a little help tonight. Matthew chapter number 4. Whenever you really need to know how things are, when you really need information, your best source will always be Jesus. After all, he was the light of the world. He shone into the darkness and said, here, I'm here to give you truth. And so Jesus will always be the source. Whenever you can find him on any topic, that's the number one thing to do. Look at what he's got to say. And we have here what I think is the best expose on the devil anywhere. Now we looked at his beginnings in Ezekiel and in uh, uh, Isaiah, and we looked at him at work in the Garden of Eden, but now we're going to see him at work here, and the focus of his work is Jesus. He's out to get Jesus. Right? He's out to get Jesus. And so we're going to look at the temptation of Christ, that is Satan tempting Jesus Christ to try and get him off balance. It's a very, very clever thing that he does here. If you don't read it carefully and you don't think it through, you think, well, it's no big deal. Jesus just went like that. Nothing to it. No, 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 no. You missed the point. So I'm going to go back to chapter 3. Because there's something that happens here that leads to chapter 4. And we want to make sure we get this. Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. John says, why are we on me to baptize you? You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, we're going to fulfill all the right things. And so Jesus is coming to this world as a man. He's taking up a human form. And he's living life like you and I live life. He looks like us. He behaves, well, he behaves better than we do, all right? But he lives like we live in the same place that we live doing the things that we do. And uh, so he's taken up a human form. And, and John says, you're the son of God. I shouldn't be baptizing you. See, right now I'm just another man. So let's get me baptized. I'm taken up the position as a man. So I want to, as a man, I want to follow all the rules 
do everything right. He says, I want to fulfill all righteousness, so I want to be baptized. And it says, then he suffered him, or that is, he baptized him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And so as Jesus goes down into the water with John the Baptist, he comes up out of the water, and you see physically with your eyes coming out of heaven a dove. Looks like a dove. And it comes down and it goes into him. And the reason they wanted you to see that, God, is I want you to understand what happened to him. The Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, came into his life and filled him. Now, the Bible says that you and I get filled with the Spirit, right? We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, all right? And so it says about us that you and I have a measure. That is, we have the Spirit in us and controlling us, but we don't quite have the whole thing. Well, it said he got it all. He got the entire Holy Spirit filling him, and he was in complete uh, harmony with the Spirit. And the reason you and I have not as much of the Spirit because we're not in harmony with Him. All right? But He was. And so the Spirit comes into Him. And then we get verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we got the God, the Son, going under the water, be baptized, coming up. God, the Spirit, coming down and entering in Jesus like He does in a human, entering into Him. And then we have a voice that comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son. So you know who He is. He's the Son of God and uh, he's uh, and God the Father says I like what he's doing I like what he's doing that's a very important phrase now here we go then was Jesus led up out of the, by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil you get that right did you get that <laughs> He said he got completely in harmony with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, okay, we're going out in the wilderness because we want the devil to give you his worst. We're going to give it to you right up to your eyeballs. Okay, let's go. And so Jesus went out into the wilderness somewhere. And it says the Spirit led him there so he could be tempted of the devil. So what do you think he's doing out there. Well, verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards hungered. Yeah, I'll bet, right? 40 days and 40 nights, almost six weeks. He goes almost six weeks without eating. I don't know if any of you remember the Irish Republican Army guys that used to go on hunger strikes. I used to watch them when I was a teenager. They'd go on hunger strikes. And they'd say, well, it's the fourth week, and he hasn't eaten, and he'd be pretty feeble. And you get to the fifth week, and they could just about move. They'd barely lift their heads up. They're right on the verge of their body shutting down. Jesus is almost six weeks, just a couple days shy of six weeks, 40 days and 40 nights, which means he is starving to death. He's starving to death. 
Is he like those Irish Republican Army guys where they're laying their head in a pillow and they can't move and whispering into the camera trying to get their point across? No, 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 no. He's a little different. Now, what he did during that time, we do not know. What would make him fast? What would make him fast? Well, Jesus said that, that uh, fasting... Uh, was to talk to God. And more important than eating was talking to God. And so Jesus did it quite often. And Jesus said, the reason you can't do the miracles I can is because I fast. I pray. And so Jesus was talking with his father out there for 40 days. He'd rather do that than eat. And so I do not believe he's lying on the ground completely out of it like the ones that I saw. Uh, rather, I think he is up and about. He's being helped by God, right? But he hasn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he's starving. And your body does strange things, and, and he's really feeling... Uh, the difficulty of that. Now, it says, when the tempter came. Notice he doesn't come until he's over with all that. He's finished. He's been 40 days with no food. And then Satan starts. And so you learn something right away. Satan's going to wait until you're in some difficult position. Then he's going to knock you around. He's not going to say, hey, you get up, I feel good today, I can take on anything. He'll say, well, there'll come a day soon when you're feeling miserable, when the stress of your life is just about ready to, <sighs> and when you are disappointed, and when you've been abandoned, when something bad has happened, then he's going to say, hey, let's talk. Then he's coming. All right. So he is not going to come at us when we're on our high horse doing well. He's going to wait until we're in real trouble, until something has happened to us, has broken our heart. Well, I don't know what it can be. It can be anything. But he comes to Jesus when he hasn't eaten for 40 days. So he's definitely going at him when he has the advantage. Verse 3. And the tempter came to him and he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. All right, now, to get Satan's attitude here, you got to pay attention to what just happened. Now, what just happened was he got baptized and he came out of the water and the father said, this is my beloved son. That's my son. That's God the son. That's who he is. And now Satan says, if that's who you are. That's very clever. If that's who you are, you've just been declared that you're the son of God, are you? I think that Satan knew that he was the son of God, 
But the real issue and the thing that Jesus has been fasting over is how do you work this out? Your man and your God, both. Not half and half, he's all God and he's all man. And I don't know what that means. I don't know, I can't explain that. Uh, the devil didn't know what it meant to be all man and all God. As a matter of fact, nobody that ever met him really could wrap their head around that he was all man and all God because he looked so much like man. And then all of a sudden, he's walking on the Sea of Galilee. Looks like God now. And then he, he's sleeping in a boat, tired, exhausted from preaching. And he's sleeping in the boat. And uh, he looks like a man now. And then he stands up in that same boat and says to the wind, hey, stop. Be still. And he looks like God again. So it's really hard to think of him, is he man or is he God? But when he got baptized, he came out of the water and God the Father said, that's my son, that's my son. And now Satan says, if you are, if you are, if you are the son of God, then there's the stones are out in the desert here, there's stones around. Just make yourself some bread. You can do that. If you're the son of God, you can make stones into bread. You say, well, could he? Yeah, sure he could. Jesus said he rode into Jerusalem and, and, and uh, uh, when they said, uh, the children that keep singing about you, tell them to stop. And Jesus, remember what he said? He said, if they stopped, the stones would sing. Well, he can do whatever he wants. He's the son of God. Right, so Satan says, if you are, if you, that's who you are, then make some bread. Now, it'd be different if you just had supper, wouldn't it? But you haven't eaten for 40 days, almost six weeks. The head, it's right there. All you gotta do is that, and you got yourself a loaf of bread. So go ahead, make the bread. This is a very subtle, very clever approach to Christ. If you are, if you that's who you're supposed to be, then make bread. Just make your bread. He doesn't say make a 10 course meal, right? Doesn't say make steak and you know ham and everything. You just make a loaf of bread. If he just said, set yourself a big old feast out here, you say Jesus wouldn't do that, would he? But how about just a loaf of bread? Doesn't seem like much. So Jesus answers, and he answered and said, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth 
out of the mouth of God. All right, now, if he is God's son, he said, here's the great temptation. You're starving almost to death. All right, here's the temptation. Uh, make yourself some bread. And he says, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. As God's son, you can do it. So do it. But I am human. I'm a man. And as a man, I am depending on God to take care of me. Right, so I'm going to keep depending on God to take care of me, and I'm not going to do it myself. So there are better things than that. There are more important things than that. My father will take care of my life. He'll keep me alive. He'll take care of my life. I'm going to trust my father to supply my needs. I am not going to take it on myself. I'm going to do what I have come here to do, which is to be a man who depends and trusts completely on God. I will not make bread out of that. My father is going to take care of me. Now, when he says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, we usually look at that and say, well, he's talking about the Bible, which I think is certainly is a reference to the Bible. But I think probably more to the point, it is God speaks a word and you are alive. And you stay alive as long as he gives that command. And when God says you're dead, you're dead. So we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As God is keeping you right here, right now, today, you're breathing. You just took a breath. God said, we're going to let you live. And there'll come a day when he said, now your life is over. Come a day for you and for me. So someday I'm going to lay down, that's it. I'm going to be all done. All right, and God will say, that's it. Your life is finished. So the matters of life are always in the hand of God. And he's saying, you're starving to death. Make yourself some bread for heaven's sakes. Don't starve to death. He said, I, my life is in God's hands. Every bit of it. From the moment I was born in Bethlehem's manger, to the day I die on that cross, my life is in his hands. I can trust him to take care of me. So it's a very subtle and very powerful. If you are the son of God, and the first thing, if somebody said that to you, you'd say, I'll show you. I said, we'd say, I'll show you. You don't think I'm the son of God. I'll watch this. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus is trying to teach us that as people, as humans, you must depend on him for everything in your world, in your life, 
and your life itself. You've got to depend on him. So he would like you, he would like you to claim your independence from God and say, I can do this myself. I can turn that stone into bread. So it's a very subtle way of saying, take over. Do what you need to do. That's what, why it's very subtle. Now we're trying to understand how Satan comes to us. That's just how he comes to us. He says to you, he says, you can do this. You can do this. You, you take over. Let's see you step up and do all that you can do. And we're going to say, no, no, life itself comes from God. And I am going to stick with God. Now, to show just how clever he is, the next one is really, really, really clever. He'd get us every time on this one. We would not get by this one. This is a very, very clever thing. And when people read this and they say, ah, it's Jesus, he can handle it. Don't you think that it wasn't tempting? Because it was. And we'll go over more why as we go through. But here we go to the second one. The devil taketh him up into the holy city, Jerusalem, setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, that is, somewhere on the temple there's a high uh, spire or whatever it is, and he sets them on the highest place there. And people say, well, how can the devil do that? Because people are so stupid when they read. They argue over stuff like that. Well, don't worry about it. If it says the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, uh, you say, well, that's not possible. How do you know? Who do you think you are? And don't you think that they both can't move in another dimension of existence and we couldn't even see it? Of course. They both could move in another dimension. Satan, he says, actually works, wanders all over through the world. Does anybody ever see him? No, because he's in another dimension. All right, there's another dimension right alongside of this one where creatures like Satan exist. And so uh, I think he did. Took him right into Jerusalem and set him on the highest point of the temple because he allowed that to happen. Remember, it was the spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And so now he's setting him up on this, like setting him up on our steeple. There he is way up there. And he saith unto him, Thou be the Son of God. There it is again. Are you the Son of God? Are you really? Prove it. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at uh, any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Well, 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 well. Satan can quote the Bible word for word. That's word for word from Psalm 91, one of our best and most beautifully written psalms. And it says there that he'll give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Satan just quoted psalms. <laughs> and you say, well, why do we come to Bible study and learn? Because we got to get better at it than he is. 
We need the Bible to fight, to resist. All right, let's make sure we put that one down. Resist the devil. We need the Bible. We've got to have it. Jesus will answer all of the devil's questions with a Bible verse. Now, you say, I'm surprised the devil uh, can quote the Bible. I'm not. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people quote the Bible who didn't know a thing about it. And use it quite frequently. Didn't know anything about it, all right? You say, well, devil, does he know it? Well, he knows it, but he, of course he won't ever do it. His function is to take the Bible and just twist it a little bit so that we miss the meaning. That's what he wants to do most. He wants you to say, all right, I can read this Bible, and then people come up with some crazy idea. That's what he wants, is to get you to be confused. And so he takes him up, he's on this high pinnacle, and he says, jump, jump. And why would I jump? Because the Bible says that he will give his angels charge and you can't be harmed. And that's the promise in the Bible. So claim the promise and jump. There's a lot of Christians today who would just plain old jump. Because right? they've been, they've swallowed this too. You know what? All right, so see the first one, the first temptation, notice, if you're the son of God, make bread out of them stones. And he says, I'm here depending on God. Okay. If you really depend on God, jump. Prove. Prove to us that you really do depend on God. Matter of fact, I'll give you a Bible verse. Angels will keep you from harm. So jump. Prove it. Prove that you depend on God and jump. And Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, Here's where we get out, out of balance. We're going to trust God. We're not going to do things on our own, like try to make bread out of stone. We're going to trust God to take care of us. So then, okay, if you really trust God, then jump off the temple, prove that you really trust God. And, and that's where he has got us. Uh, he's really got a hold of us. now. Let's take a look over how, where this stuff came from. Exodus chapter 17. And most of the things that Jesus quote to the devil when he quotes scripture back to him are from Deuteronomy, actually. That famous book that everybody loves. Deuteronomy. Everybody reads it every night because they enjoy it so much. Deuteronomy. But here's a little thing that happened. In chapter 17, 
And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Therefore do ye tempt the Lord. Now this is where that statement comes from. Now if we go down to uh, verse 7. This is Jesus, or Moses takes his rod by God's command, strikes the rock, and the water comes out. A huge fountain of water comes out and fills that desert with water. Verse 7. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is God here or not? You brought us out in the wilderness here. Where's God? God prove it. If we're out here and where you're supposed to be with us, prove it. We want you to prove it right now and give us water. And Moses said, you shouldn't have said it like that. You shouldn't have done it that way. If God is here or not, prove it, he said. And so Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The very subtle nature of Satan is that he says, Here's a promise. Why don't you claim it? Claim it. And do it. Right. Isn't that faith? Is that faith? Well, see, to claim a promise is one thing. To make demand on God is another thing. Right. See, God gave us a promise. Okay. So we're going to ask God and say what? All right. God... We really could use this now, but we say always, thy will be done. Okay, we say thy will be done. We don't say to God, hey, I'm jumping off of here. You better help me now. Here I go. Bang. And you go splat on the ground. Right? So we don't demand things from God and say, here's a promise and I'm claiming it. Is this starting to ring a little bell in your ear? You ever heard this stuff? You betcha. I want to tell you probably 75% of Christian TV is either temptation one or temptation two. Temptation one, what? You're going to get all the bread you need. So send us your money. Your money is a seed. You send us the seed, we'll plant it, and you'll get the increase. And they have the ladies come up. I got a check in the mail for $10,000. They go on and on and on. And there's whole ministries, whole movements called the Prosperity Doctrine whole movements in Christianity today that have swallowed that. Right? They say, we want bread. Give us bread. 
Jesus said, no, 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 there's something more important in life than that. It's God himself. God's words himself are more important than that. That's what you need. He said, no, 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 we want a lot of bread. Give, give us stuff, Lord, stuff. So the first one is, and the second one is even more so. Uh, give us a miracle. God, we want a miracle. We're going to stand up here. We're going to wave our hands, and that pastor's going to knock me in the head, and I'm going to be healed. So I'm going to stand up here and prove it. I'll show you what God can do. I'll stand up and prove it. And God says, oh. Did you see it there? Jump off the temple would be a miracle. Yeah. Satan is very clever. He knows just where to get us. All right, now let's go to the third temptation back in Matthew 4. All right, so the first one, I won't make bread. I'm going to trust God. Leads to the second one. If you trust God, jump. And now we come to the third one. The third one is different. Verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him up to exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So, at that time, of course, was the glory of Rome, glory of Greece, the glory of Egypt. Those are the major powers in the world, rising powers of uh, Babylon and so forth. And we're in different places of the world. And he says, take a look at all this. I'll give it to you. And you think it wasn't his to give, don't you? You say, what is he doing? Why, how can he give Jesus the world? Well, the world he showed him was his to give, all right, the world that he, that he showed him. I'm going to talk about the world of the devil, our systems, whereby the world operates. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians chapter 2. We always say, hear people say, well, how can the devil give the world to Jesus? He doesn't own it. And you can open your Bible and it'll say there uh, th that the world belongs to God. And that when humans fell, God didn't just turn it over to Satan, he took it back. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Say, well, God owns the world. What's Satan trying to do? Well, here we go. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in past time you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And so driving the forces that run this world is Satan's option. It's what he does. He set up world systems, government, 
where people have a lust for power. They have a lust for power. That's Satan's system where governments, people in charge, want power. You've got plenty of good examples now to see that. That's a system of Satan. He says there's a spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. And that spirit in government is a lust for power. Spirit of money, where greed is the driving force behind those things. Spirit of entertainment is all through the world where we have distractions and distractions and distractions that will entirely consume your time if you allow. It'll consume your time, it'll consume your life. I've seen people go from one season to the next to the next following sports. They follow this sport, follow that sport, that sport until that's all they ever talk about. When you're around them, that's what they talk about. It's the distraction of the world. And so the world has these systems and they're pretty powerful. Government, desire for power, money, greed, entertainment, distractions. These are systems that run through the world through Satan's power. And they are pretty much under his control all the time. Now he says, look at these systems. Look what they did. They built a world kingdom. Look at Rome. All its fantastic buildings and the Colosseum and all the rest of it. Look at Rome. Look what they've done. They built every road from the whole world. Said all roads went to Rome. They built roads. They built aqueducts. They just did amazing things all over from Great Britain into, into Africa. He said, these systems are mine. I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. So these systems are a temptation. Now, why would that be a temptation to Jesus? Well, let's see what he says here. All these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. You're gone. I love that part. I'm done with you. You're gone. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. All right. Jesus came, he's Messiah, he's just been baptized as Messiah, had the Holy Spirit come down on him as Messiah, he's man and God as Messiah, he's trusting in his Heavenly Father as Messiah, he came to set up a kingdom. What Jesus came to do. What did he say to Pontius Pilate? Right? Remember what he said? He said, Pilate said, are you a king? He said, yeah. And he said, but my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my people would fight. The kingdoms of this world fight. 
That's why there's been war from the beginning of time, and the human history will end in war. There'll always be wars, all right? More and more wars and rumors of wars as the time draws closer. Jesus came to set up a kingdom. Satan says, I'll give it to you now. Here it is. You want a kingdom, you're here to make a kingdom. It's yours. Just bow down to me once. And it's yours. Isn't that what Jesus wanted? No. Jesus said it will never, ever compromise. Only worship God. Never compromise. And the, what's the temptation of it then? Temptation is you can have your kingdom and you can do it by bowing down to me. Your other option, if you do it your way, is to suffer and be tortured and to die on a cross. You can get a kingdom that way. Which one do you want? Just bow down to me and I'll give you this one. And Jesus said, no, no. I will never, ever take anything that leaves out the cross. And all of these things actually have that same thing in them. Uh, I'm going to leave out the cross. So if he turns stones into bread, what will happen? What happened when he fed 5,000? He took five little loaves and two fishes and he, and he fed 5,000 people with them. What did they say? We're going to make him king. We're going to make him a king. So he could have had a kingdom by just breaking bread. And they said, we'll make him our king right now. He could have had a kingdom by breaking bread, but that would have left the cross out. So he refuses that. Do a miracle. Do a miracle. If you jump off the temple and come floating down and you land on the ground amongst all these worshipers, they'll drop down on their knees and worship you and say, oh, that was amazing. You must be God. We worship you. We worship you. He doesn't want that. That's not what he wants. He's going to go to the cross and suffer and die there. And the temptation will always be to avoid the suffering and avoid the difficulty, avoid the trial. And that's why Satan comes at him in his most cleverness. He said, you want to be Messiah. You want to be king. So you, you can be a king if you want, but you don't have to suffer for it. I'll give you my kingdom. I'll turn it right over to you now. You do not have to go through all that Messiah stuff. You can be king right now. Turn them stones to bread. They'll make you a king. That was true. They tried to do it. Do these miracles. And everybody will say, oh, that's the one. I mean, when you talk about people advertising on TV, come and get your miracle. They swallowed it whole. The things that we are warned against in this passage, people are in it up to their eyeballs.
confused as to the nature of the temptations of Satan. They are ignorant of his devices. So how are we going to resist? How are we going to resist? Well, we've got to remember. All right? We're going to trust in God to take care of us. We're not going to take that job onto ourselves. We're not going to do something foolish because there's a promise that says, here we go. There's a promise. Claim that promise. Make your claim. Stand up and say, okay, God, I make it my claim. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can trust and you can pray to God and you can ask for his help. And then when you're done, make sure you say whatever is best for you. Whatever you want, God. And then there's no kingdom, Christ's kingdom, ever going to amount to anything unless there's the blood of the cross. It was on that cross where the kingdom is established established by the blood of Christ, poured out for those who believe in him. And that's where the strength is. And so we must avoid the trap of the shortcuts. Now you can fill your church with these shortcuts. There's a whole lot of churches that are packed right to the gills by following these shortcuts. They, that's what they do. So if you want a miracle, you come on down, we'll give you one. We're going to pray prosperity into you. You give us 10,000, you'll make a million. Right? All of those things are very much, they swallowed whole Satan's temptation. And one of the worst ones is we're not going to deal with the blood and the cross. You just come and relax. Have positive thinking. Just feel good. We want you to feel good about yourself. You feel good, and we can leave all that cross out. We can leave the repentance out. We can leave the straighten your life up out. Just come and be good. Be happy. We won't bother you. We won't remind you that you're a sinner. We'll just avoid that whole cross thing. And believe me, whole sections of the church have gone that way too. That's why there's churches with 20 people in it today because they're dead because they will not talk about the cross and the blood of Christ and what it means and they want a kingdom but some other way all right so this is really if you want to know how Satan works there it is all laid out for you now you're warned now you are aware of what he's trying to pull, all right? He doesn't want to be your bread king. He doesn't want to be your miracle king. It's not what he wants, all right? No shortcuts, all right? We've got to do God's word. We've got to do it God's way. And then we've got to do God's worship. God's word, God's way, God's worship, and don't redefine them to mean something different. So that's a very thorough explanation of who the devil is right there. Clever and subtle, finding your weakest point, attacking you there, 
trying to draw you off the message, always draw you off the message, trying to make you build up some false faith, make claims on God. He says, you won't tempt God. We don't want you to do that. It's very instructive. There's nothing in the Bible so instructive about Satan as that right there. You will never learn more about Satan than in these few verses here and how he works. And that's what we are up against. So if you're going to resist, you're going to learn that Bible. Get that Bible down. Read it. Get it in your heads. Understand it every time you understand it. And when he quotes the Bible to you, you better be able to quote it back to him. <laughs> he can quote the Bible, but he doesn't get it right. If he ever got it right, he'd have to admit that he was wrong. And he'll, he'll be sent to hell and eternally down there in torment and flames saying, I hate God, I hate God, I hate God. He'll say that forever. He will never say, I was wrong. So... Don't be one of those, all right? That's where he's going. All right, we'll talk more about that a little bit next week, and we'll get into uh, hell, more about hell. Thank you.